Welcome to the podcast. Let's first start this episode by thanking our new Patreon members. Let's start with Alex King in Haywards Heath, which is right outside London. He signed up for our gold tier. He doesn't own his own business yet, but is saving cash money to start his own company. So thank you, Alex, for signing up for this tier. Matt Barber from Richmond, Virginia, who is the president of Barber & Associates. Thank you for also signing up. Sean Walker from Hillhead in the UK. Appreciate you becoming a member this week as well. And the last one for today is Rain Mahadi in San Diego with Hawk Packaging. If you're looking for custom printed packaging, be sure to check out his company in the episode notes. And if you haven't heard your name yet and you signed up, we'll get you in the upcoming episode, so don't worry. For those of you who haven't had a chance to sign up yet, well, if you have your own business and you're not in the gold tier, then you're really missing out. The first people who sign up for these tiers are going to benefit the most. So even if you're contemplating whether to join, the sooner you join, the better for you. So again, thank you to our new Patreon members and thank you to all our listeners. But again, if you're interested in any Patreon membership, I'd suggest signing up as soon as possible because prices will be going up. So let's go ahead and get started with this episode. It's part of life. We're all going to lose abilities at some point. And unfortunately, it's sooner with my wife. She's in a wheelchair. But again, try to make the best of what we have. We have a wheelchair capable leash because she's here to test it. Working hand in hand with people with special needs is kind of how this all started to begin with. And so as Betsy's abilities have declined, we've come up with more and more ways to help her, in particular with the bike tow leash and her being in the chair, traveling and visiting different restrooms and restaurants and flying on airplanes, all these things that we do, learning about how to make it work in all these environments is taken as the frustrations that we have turn into a positive for other people, I guess is the best way of putting it. We were working with a vendor, uh, I think they were in North Carolina. All of a sudden, we started getting parts that broke. But then they got a new oven, and all of a sudden, the parts didn't work anymore. It takes a tremendous amount of money to build a reputation. It takes even more to repair one. I really got suckered on that, if you want to hear about a bad experience. I know, definitely. That's what we're here to hear. Probably one of the most important things you can do is get a provisional patent that gives you patent rights for about a year. If you can find a way to do good with your product, people will do good for you. This is Michael Leon. I'm 58 years old. I'm in Orlando, Florida. My company name is Leon Engineering Incorporated. Our main business is producing and selling the bike tow leash for riding safely with your dog works on bikes, trikes, mobility scooters, and wheelchairs. Our goal is that no matter your abilities, the dog gets a walk or a run. Okay. How long have you been doing Leon Engineering for? We incorporated Leon Engineering in 2003 after I had been laid off from the job of being an R&D engineering manager at FMC Corporation. And is that a big corporation? Yeah. Well, it's now split off, but FMC Airline Equipment was the part of the company I was with. It's split off since, but it was about $9 billion, I think, at the time. But we were doing the airline equipment side of it that supplies the loaders and de-icers for the aircraft. My specialty was the loaders that loaded the aircraft. The company is still the sole supplier to FedEx and DHL and companies like that. It takes the big cans that load the aircraft of cargo. You'll see them out on the airport ramp, the big scissor lifts that take the cargo in and out. On any plane that's got two L's in it, the wide bodies in particular have uh, containers that hold the luggage and cargo. Mm -hmm. And you'll see them go out on the trailers and get shifted onto the aircraft. That was my area. Dealing with aircraft, and you said it was a $9 billion company? The whole corporation, the loader airline portion of it was just a small portion of that. And it's been split off since. Now it's John Bean Corporation, which is named after one of the original founder of the company. Is that how about the size of your company today? $9 billion? My company today, no. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> It sounds like you're dealing stuff with aircrafts and engineering, and and then now you're saying that basically your company, its product is something called the bike tow leash? Yeah, it's a complete reinvention of myself, completely away from airline equipment in the pets industry, which is uh, continually growing. This last year, the industry size is about $70 in the United States alone. 
in the pet industry yet because I think people spend more money on their dogs even than their kids or something. I don't know if you've heard that before. That's very common. Most people don't have insurance on their animals. So you're not just paying a copay, you're paying the full bill. We just had our cat in for tooth cleaning and that was over $200. Understood. And I haven't gone to the dentist in a couple of years. <laughs> there you go. Care <laughs> of your cat than I do myself. Tell us a little bit more about this bike toe leash. Obviously, people are hearing audio only. Tell us what made you want to start this and tell us a little bit more about this device that you made. Well, for those people listening in, you can take a look at pictures of it at biketoeleash.com. That's B-I-K-E-T-O-W-L-E-A-S-H.com. Basically, I developed this just before being laid off from FMC Corporation, uh, was kind of an offshoot of the 9-11 attacks. Everybody was canceling orders that caused a lot of layoffs. I thought I was going to retire with that company, but a little shortened on that. But we had started raising service dogs back in 2001. It was probably in the fall, I think it was. But in the summer, I had been hit by a car while riding my bike with the kids to school. I'd already dropped them off and I was on my way to work and got hit by a car at an intersection. When 9-11 happened, I was out on disability. That probably preserved my position for the following year because I wasn't there to be laid off. It's hard to lay somebody off that's on disability, apparently. And you had been at that company for, what, a good 15, 16 years? So you just thought you were going to be a company employee until you are ready to retire? I had been there at that time 16 years. When I was laid off, it was over 17. It was a good and a bad thing. Ultimately, I feel like it turned into a good thing for us, just make lemonade with lemons. I had come up with the idea of the bike toe leash because while I was still on disability and laid up, my wife and two girls had gone to the grocery store at the Publix and run into a lady with a little black lab wearing a cape. She was a puppy raiser. She was answering questions from fielded by Betsy and the two girls just absolutely enamored by the idea of having a dog with you at all times kind of thing. And they came home after tying up Cindy, who was the lady's name, held her up for about an hour in the grocery store, came home and announced, we're going to start raising service dogs. They said, you know, if we can put up with your being laid off and recovery and stuff like that for a year, that you only raise the dogs for a year and then you give them back. It's not a permanent relationship. You're not keeping the dog through their lifespan. It's a temporary thing. Yeah. And you couldn't do much because you were injured anyway. So you didn't have a choice, right? They said they were going to do it. <laughs> I had plenty of choice. And at that time, I wasn't that off. I was still doing a lot of therapies and such. And part of the therapy was riding the bike with my girls to school to rehab my knee that had been damaged badly. And I just had a third knee operation at that time. So moving on the pedals was better than walking. The idea of raising the service dog wasn't that bad. I did resist a little bit because I didn't feel like we would be home enough, but also and I'm home all the time. So <laughs> anyway, the first dog's name was Tribute, our way of giving back to those lost kind of thing. And Tribute was a long-legged black lab with lots of energy. And she was a very tall for a lab. She could put her head on the table if desired to. The big part of raising the service dogs is that you have to take them everywhere with you to socialize them. You're getting them used to the environment so they don't react badly in any situation and greet people properly and all that stuff. And you've got a list of commands to train them at the same time. The idea was Betsy was going to take tribute to work, but a six-month-old or less Labrador has a tremendous amount of energy. And the idea is to have the dog go with her to work, sleep under her desk until lunchtime, then take a walk and come back and sleep under the desk for the rest of the day. That's a tall order for a young puppy. Betsy would tell me, you need to scrub the energy off this dog before I take her to work, and she's got to be there by 7 a.m. And I got the idea, since I was already riding the bike, and that's one of my favorite things to do, to ride the bike with the dog. And I scoured the internet for safe equipment to make that possible, because I certainly understand physics and the ability for the dog to knock us down. Found some other equipment out there. There was a couple other prevalent items at the time, but all had the same design issues where the dog had power over you. And it wasn't safe for the dog or the rider. And the raising organization would not accept us riding with that equipment. That was the push for me to come up with a safe way to do it. So this was about 2001, 2002? This was 2001, yeah. Okay. And then how old were you at this point in time? Younger than I am now. <laughs> <laughs> I guess about 16 years ago or so? Yeah. My girls were very young. My girls are now... One's a senior in college and the other one's teaching high school already. So it's been a journey. They live the whole thing. Yeah. So you're around 40-ish, right? When you started doing this? 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Midlife reinvention. Yeah. No, I understood. And I totally understand because I actually have a dog that we have to do the same thing where I had to get a leash because he's so wound up that it's like, okay, walking wasn't doing enough. Actually ride the bike to get all that energy out of him. Mm -hmm. And my wife, I won't even let her try to take the dog on the leash while we're doing it because I understand like, luckily I'm strong enough. I feel like I'm one of the few people that I'm like, if this dog really wanted to pull you as hard as you can, you could easily fall off the bike and she's not even going to touch him because then she'd be dragged over in a second. Mm -hmm. Anyone has a dog or have tried to do that while on the bike, I think they can understand. Depending on the size of the dog, even if it's like a mid-sized dog or bigger, if they see something and they want to take off while you're holding that leash on the bike, then good luck. Yeah, we actually have on our brochures that kind of the physics of it. When you're holding the leash, how many pounds of force? It's like 183 pounds of tipping force if the dog just pulls with 50 pounds. Well, it's proven that a dog can lunge away from your bike up to three times their body weight. Mm -hmm. It means it's absolutely impossible, no matter your size or strength, to hold a dog back if you're biking. Right. Well, you're an engineer, so we can tell that you've looked into all this stuff with all the numbers here, right? Oh, yes. When you're using the bike toe leash, you hardly even know the dog is attached when they lunge sideways. It puts the forces down below the center of gravity of the bike. If you let go of the bike, if you got off and let go of it, the bike would fall away from the dog. It's all designed around safety. Your product is basically, instead of me being able to do that, me using a leash, it would be much safer and easier if I had a dog that Pretend I had no leash at all and he was following me right next to my bike the whole time. This is what your product does is that the dog can be right next to you as you ride your bike and then you have way less worry of injury or injury to the dog, right? It's actually much safer than that even because a dog that's free next to you is potentially and definitely will get in your way at some point. Right. This prevents them from getting into your wheels or in front of you. And it's actually training the heel position or side position, depending on which side you have the bike toe leash mounted. Mm -hmm. It has a resilient mast barrier that is designed to be adjusted to touch the dog right in the rib area where they're tender. They get touched. They know exactly where the bike is. They'll be towing you along. Typically, if you're on a narrow trail, you can use it on single track trails. If there's a tree that's too close to the side of the trail and the dog senses that they can't get around it, then they just slow down and they're automatically placed behind the bike. And then there's a gentle nudge from the leash to push them back into position beside you where you can see them, where they're visible. So you can tell how they're doing. If they're dropping back from that position for any reason, you know, to slow down. The dog has to set the pace. They're the one with the feet on the ground. Okay. Not only is it good for safety, but you're saying even if you want to train your dog to be walking side by side next to you versus some dog owners might not understand. If the dog's pulling somebody over and over, you really want them to be next to you and train them properly. At least it helps you with that as well, not just with the safety. Absolutely. You have the ability to steer the dog exactly where you're going. There's a sport called bike joring where you put the dog all the way out front. They might be on a six or eight foot lead in front of you, which has all sorts of safety issues. People get injured a lot. They have to pretty much go in a straight line and the dogs have to know ha and G and on by and all these other commands and be 100% on them or they'll pull you off trail into something or you have to release them to prevent pulling you off trail. With the bike toe leash, you've got control over where they go. You can teach them the commands, all this stuff. But even if they don't know the commands, you're going to go where you need to go. Ready for a new sponsor for our podcast? Well, don't worry, because Mack Weldon is here to the rescue. See, Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. In fact, it's so simple, a podcast listener can do it. See, Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, or sweatpants that you will ever wear. They even have a line of silver underwear and shirts that naturally eliminate odor. They want you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair, you can just keep it and they will still refund you. No questions asked. Damn. Well, not only does Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well too. It's good for working out, going to work, going out on dates, just the everyday life, like listening to a podcast. I ended up ordering a few pairs of their active shorts. The first time I wore them out was a few days ago. And of course, I ended up spilling some salsa on them. But the material of the shorts actually kept the food from staining them. And this is for real. I mean, it actually just rolled off the shorts. So needless to say, this was my favorite part of these shorts from Mack Weldon. Well, how about ordering? Well, ordering these shorts was just as easy as putting them on. Just like I'm doing right now. See, I've been doing this entire ad read bottomless. And speaking of bottomless, if you want a bottom low price when ordering off of MacWeldon.com, then be sure to enter promo code MILLIONAIRE at checkout. 
Again, this is for a 20% off your first order. Go visit MacWeldon.com and enter the promo code MILLIONAIRE at checkout. Basically, you had the dog back home. You wanted to get the energy out of your new dog. So tell us what you ended up doing and tell us about the beginning phases of making this product. I had kind of aha moment kind of thing. It's like, I've got to mount it down low on the bike. I've got to put it uh, near the rear axle so the dog doesn't have any ability to steer the bike. If it's anything forward of the rear axles and it's too far rear of the rear axle, it can steer you. If it's high up on the bike, they can tip you. It kind of led me to where we have to attach the bike. Unfortunately, it's an area of the bike that there's lots of different configurations out there. Coming up with a universal clamping mechanism was easier on the left-hand side and made more sense because dogs are trained predominantly to heal on the left-hand side. But more and more and more, there's needs to put them on the right-hand side as trails get busier and congested areas, all sorts of reasons. We have additional stuff that I've developed in the last couple of years that I think the last one's patent pending still for attaching to the other side of the bike. There was a long process of actually getting it attached to the bike and getting a mast in there. Many, many prototypes. I made the original one foldable and all sorts of things and put that out in front of a few industry buyers. And they said, oh, that's way too complicated. And they were absolutely right. I learned a lot along the way. It's like, I'm a mechanical engineer. It's not too complicated for me to put on, but for the average person, yeah. You've got to make it simpler. So it's been a lot of simplifying the product as we go. That's some good insight. If we're making a product, mm-hmm. can you give us a little bit more detail? Because you're saying, yeah, it was way too complicated at first. Even though it didn't seem way to you, you've got to make it as simple as possible, right? Yeah. If somebody pulled up our original patents, it's a much more complicated, many more pieces involved. I felt like it needed to be compact. And the desire was to ship it in a much smaller box, ultimately, as well, and be portable. But once you've attached the bike, most people will attach the bike and leave it there unless they've got a real high-end bike that they use for other things and stuff. They'll just leave it on the bike and clip it to the back of the seat and they're done. Having all this other mechanism in there to make it smaller is a big waste. Certainly harder to manufacture as well. But no, the original one had, it was a three-piece mast where it could fold up. I could put a little bag. It was about the size of two fists to uh, fold it up but you had to push the pieces together. There was a little spring button to put the last piece on there. There was Velcro and a internal bungee cord set up that would, if there was a hard pull, to have that deploy so it would reduce the shock on the dog and it was the purpose. And what I found over time was that the dog would deploy that too easily. That caused other safety situations rather than have a fixed length. By increasing the mast length and changing the flexibility of what we call the coupler, which sort of acts as your shoulder, the whole leash itself is like a prosthetic arm. There's a bent part like your elbow. There's the coupler. The black part is like your shoulder, so it can be beside the bike. Is everything you would do with your arm if you mounted it right at the axle, holding the dog right beside your bike down low, making the arm longer. So if the dog had to stop to relieve themselves or something, it gave the full length of that arm to bend straight to rotate all the way back. It gives a very large stopping distance with resistance so that you can see and feel the dog coming out of position and slow the bike down and absorb that shock so it doesn't hurt the dog or the rider. Yeah, the first thing you know they told you was to make it simpler, right? Because I mean, even though it's not like you're making a shovel, but it's not like you're making a phone either. Even though it might sound somewhat simplistic, just hearing, okay, bike tow leash, really all these little mechanisms, especially with you're using on the animal, so you can't really talk to the animal and get great feedback. What other nuances did you figure out as far as actually making a product? Because you haven't done that before. You're the nine to five engineer before, but now you're trying to put together a product when you have no background in that, right? I had industrial product development in my belt from working for FMC. It was a wonderful opportunity to learn everything I needed to know to do this. Where I was doing engineering, I was doing machine design, but for products, the the end users were the airlines. So it wasn't the everyday consumers. That part was very, very different. Learning that was important. I did have the opportunity to work with people in purchasing and manufacturing. They manufactured the product right there, which was very unique for uh, engineering experience. Be able to literally put it in the CAD system and walk out and see the part made same day. Wow. A lot of stress when it had to be done the same day, of course. But the customers would come in and kick the tires and test things, and we would get that feedback. And I did work with vendors worldwide in that process as well. I was well-rounded to start my own business like this, manufacture the product, but I was not working with the everyday consumer. My first experience really with learning about 
preferences, particularly in the pet industry. I went to early trade show that has now become huge that barely fits in our convention center here in Orlando, was in a hotel down the street and there was a tiny little booth and there was this guy with this little red round thing with a hole in it called a Kong. And I spoke with the inventor of the Kong who's come a long way with that whole product. Everybody's got at least one chew toy made by Kong in their dog's possession at this point in time. But he gave me one piece of advice. He said, actually showing off something else I was working on, but he uh, made a real point to me. He says, I had the dog on the leash. It was one of our service dogs that I'm leading around. He says, see that dog? Do you see any pockets? I said, no. He says, that's what you got to remember. That dog will drink out of any water bowl, but the owner is going to buy the pink one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got you. That's why our bike toe lease comes in three colors. Not because I wanted to have to manufacture three different things and stock and worry about inventory and all that. It's because that's what the industry is going to demand. How about making it? You have the confidence and ability to make it or think about how to make it. But how about you actually going to find your own suppliers or how do you get the parts together to actually put this thing together? Well, the the prototypes, I consider myself a very fortunate person. I look at things and see different ways of using things. And there's actually a store here in Orlando called Skycraft, which has all sorts of surplus. Any company that's going out of business or has something that time is expiring on things and stuff like that ends up in a place like that to where you can go and just walk around and just see different things. And the way my mind works is I see those and it's just another project waiting to happen. I was working on the bike toe leash. I had stuff in my garage left over from when the kids were in their little bike seats. So there's little clamps here and there to clamp on the bike and different springs and all sorts of things to try. But going to Skycraft, I found even more parts and stuff. So for making the prototypes, I kind of did that locally sourced and bending and drilling and all sorts of machine work to make the original prototypes that would take me days to put together. As the design more solidified is uh, we got more prototypes out there and people loving them and stuff. And that's when we started looking at, well, I've got to build these in volume. I can't build these this way. So I started looking at, at stamping houses and stuff like that locally and how to source the right materials that could work in all weather conditions. Here in Orlando, Florida, plastic parts and stuff remain supple and bend the way they need to, don't get brittle. We had to come up with materials that were going to work in Canada in the winter, for instance. Well, you said stamping houses. What is that? That's basically a factory that'll take uh, flat steel and flat aluminum and create shaped parts with holes in them. You'll create a tooling that will set in a press and press down real hard on the particular metal and it'll cut and form that flat piece into a functional part. This first year, you're still laid off. You're making this product. Tell us about going back to work because it sounds like you were kind of making this as a side product or side business, and then you have the ability to go back to work. Tell us about getting laid off and what you had to deal with that. Well, I, I was fortunate. I'd been with the company for 17 years at the time, so I got a severance package, which allowed us to pay off our house. One thing we've been very fortunate is never living beyond our means My wife was still working. She was an electrical engineer from Georgia Tech where we met. I'm mechanical, so we cross-pollinated. Yeah, I understood. She was still working up through 2009. We did have a paycheck coming in that way, and we'd reduced our overhead with the house being paid off. That allowed us to still have about $20,000 to invest in the business. Mm -hmm. So when we started the company in 2003, put $20,000 in a company account. In 2005, we paid ourselves back that money. Well, before we jump to 2005, can we just go over, because if people are in a similar situation, I mean, it must have been a shock when you got laid off or was it not? Well, there was a big layoff in 2001, right after the 9-11 attacks, about a month later. I think it was in October. I remember I was literally on my way for a knee surgery and I got a call from one of my friends at work that they were laying people off. To add angst to my surgery date, I'm worried about my position. So I had plenty of time to have angst and worry about that. That was probably the lowest point in my life because I left a career where every breath was thinking about how to improve what I was doing at FMC. I was the R&D manager, the responsibility of developing new product for them to continue to be the leader in the industry. They had 80% of the loader market in the world. It was a real shock. It must have been, like you said, you had that nine to five all the way up to that point. And then it's things that you found out when you're going into surgery. Personally, you must have been having a decent sized paycheck coming home, just your annual salary versus all of a sudden it's gone. I mean, you at least got severance, but the bike totally shut you made on the side. 
side was just getting started, right? No, we didn't have any revenue from the bike tow leash. Ultimately, as far as my paycheck until 2009, the real push was Betsy had to quit working. She's disabled. She had to stop working. So I needed a paycheck at that time. That's when we started our website and started actually selling in 2009. 2008, my daughter, actually my younger daughter, helped me with one trade show where we sold our first few at a trade show in the convention center. We actually shared a booth with another company. So we only had five by 10 feet. We just had literally prototype ones that we had at that time and sold, I think, 10 or 12 leashes. I think we sold 10 there and two more they came and picked up because we didn't have them anymore, just cash sales kind of thing. And then in 2009, we went from a couple hundred in 2008 to over a thousand in 2009. So that was a big push. I guess it was like five or six years in between. You could say that you're kind of working on it, but it was just kind of a side project, if you will. It was a side project. I was trying to go further with it. I needed some income to pay for the intellectual property. I got a very good deal on it because my father and stepmother, they have a patent agency in Atlanta. They helped me with the patents, all of our patents since. I got that at very, very low cost. I'm very fortunate to have that family support. Can that be expensive? It's very expensive. If you hire a patent attorney and try to get a patent, you've got to bring the attorney up to speed as to what the technology is. Then they've got to translate that into patent ease. It's a whole other language that's <laughs> just about impossible for anybody else to read right. and make sure that it's not stepping on anybody else's patent rights and all this patent searches. It's a long, long process. I was just very fortunate that again, had that connection with your family to be able to help connection. I had a lot of knowledge about patents prior to that, not only from my family side, but at FMC, I was the patent coordinator, a job that kind of fell in my lap because I was the engineer in the group that had the most patents there at FMC Airline Equipments. It became my job to coordinate the budget and what patents we kept and where we patented different items. How much would it cost if we didn't have the hookup like you? Because I don't think I've discussed that with any other guests as far as how much it might cost for a consumer product patent and how long it takes to get one. Typically takes a year or two, depending on how fast things move. A patent attorney can charge you hundreds of dollars an hour for their efforts. Depending on the complexity and that sort of thing, you could spend thousands of dollars very quickly. This being a side business where you're just, you know, it's not like you've got back people to help you as far as the money. It's your personal money and you're making it as a side business. So I could understand yeah. why, especially like if you're getting started, that's why I guess people don't get patents to get started, huh? Yeah. And it's very important. Patent law is very complicated, but it's very important to get patent protection. There is a shortcut patent that can protect you very temporarily. That is probably one of the most important things you can do is get a provisional patent that gives you patent rights for about a year. And it's much less expensive, but it's very temporary. But it's sort of the equivalent of a non-disclosure agreement. I truly recommend that you do both if you're talking to people about your technology before you have your patent in place. But it's very important that you apply for a patent within a certain time frame of starting to sell a product, depending on what countries you're dealing with. And that sort of thing is that you can lose your patent or ability to patent if you don't do it soon enough. Somebody can actually get to the patent office ahead of you and take your rights away or it just expires. Is there usually a certain time frame? Because like one thing I've noticed, for instance, notice a lot of Roomba knockoffs here recently. Ah, yes. Right. <laughs> it sounds like you know a lot about this patent stuff. How long does that last? Or could you give us a little bit more inside information as far as what we could learn about doing a patent with a consumer product? The time frame, typically, if there's a timeout feature for getting a U.S. patent, it's just like you have to apply for the patent before you've started to sell the product or there's a time limit of a year for a lot of other countries. There's You have to patent for each country you want to be protected in. That's where expenses really get big. Certainly in the U.S., you better get a U.S. patent, but you also got to consider what your markets are or where the product may be produced. It gets very pricey. What I did to finance that was did product forensics, which is the way of, of being an expert witness for uh, product litigation cases. I would inspect products that caused uh, loss or injury and report my findings. 
these were your kind of two businesses, even though we're mainly talking about the product business, because I think more people can learn about it and everything. Yep. I guess the main thing that you were saying, the reason those years in between, you were still working from home, but you had your own service-based business where you're looking at these things. And since you have a background in it, that was kind of helping you pay the bills. But really, while you're waiting for all these patents and everything in the product to get going, even though it took a few years, this is what you did in between while you were doing that. Yeah, that allowed me to raise about 60000 a year to go straight into the business. So we sell finance because of that ability. Okay. 2009, 2010, I want to skip ahead. You're saying you're finally starting to sell the products. Just tell us what you're learning at this point in time. And I believe you also said something about your wife having to come home. So you have to start making sure you make even more money now. Yeah, she had to stop working because she couldn't do her cost analysis stuff. She was working for the government, for the Army. She had a 26-year career with them, but then had to come home and needed more and more care here. The fact that I'm working at home now became a necessity. It was good to be here for the kids. At my previous employment with FMC, I was traveling all over the globe, and I certainly couldn't do that at this point. We're working from home. We're learning about how to manage that and let people know that I have a real job. I have to get these things done. And so we're skipping ahead 2009, 2010. We really started to actually make money when a little bit of advertising happened. We got an ad in Pet Business Magazine. My understanding is that the first couple of other websites picked us up because they saw us there. It gave us credibility. That gave us enough funds to start doing the trade shows. We're doing the Global Pet Expo here in Orlando is the big one that we do and just a few other small ones. We started our own website, which was 2009. Not everybody had bought anything on the web at that point. And I certainly didn't, hadn't bought as near as many things as I have today. My experience on what websites required and stuff were a lot less than they are now, but we still have our 2009 website, unfortunately. We're trying to get a new one. It has its limitations. It takes time to make the transaction. You can go on Amazon, or if you go on the app on your phone, you've bought something before you realized it. It's that fast because you, all your credentials are already in. You can doze off and buy a whole bunch of things. <laughs> in our case, you've got to put in all your personal information, put your credit card in still, or, or go to PayPal. much quicker. We do that. Our goal now is to reduce that purchase friction, they call it. Yeah. Well, that's your next step. All of us, when we're making a business, we all have specialties that we're good at. And maybe you're more making the product and trying to understand that and getting the patent where some people want it. But maybe there's other listeners who are really good at websites and stuff. Even though maybe that part of your business is ready to be updated and you're working on it today, then that's fine. But I mean, it was good enough to get you to where you are today. Yeah, it's still working. It's amazing. What were some big jumps when you were selling this product that we can learn from? Because I'd like to think that you're smart enough, and you said this earlier on, which I think is really important, is keeping your overhead low. You were working from home and had the ability to do that. But as far as making revenue, what else did you learn and that we could learn from in those early years? Well, it's very important to not get ahead of yourself. Be very careful with your inventory. We started out buying product parts for the product at 500 pieces at a time because we just couldn't go out any further, certainly that affects your cost. And so you haven't hit the economic order quantity at that level. And you have to entice the suppliers you're trying to work with to let them know that, that this is just a start order and work with us. And I think the most important thing to control your cost when you're working with any vendor, they have their capabilities, their specialties. We talked about stamping houses, is that you've got a design You've got a picture of your part on a nice piece of paper and you take it in there and you have a meeting with them and they tell you, well, this it'll take this much money to make this. And you say, well, I really want to hit this number, which is, of course, lower. And you say, well, what would you do? What would make this easier for you to make so that we can get to that number? And simple things like a rounded corner or a squared off corner versus a rounded corner that has absolutely no change at all in your functionality is a tremendous difference in cost for a particular stamping house to make that part. It changes the process and the time involved and the length of the number of parts that can be made from that piece of tooling before it wears out. There's so many factors that come in or a simple thing, change a hole size. Is this a standard punch size or is this one that's going to be made special because you put this dimension on there or is this tolerance? Does that have to be that close or does it make sense to make that hole bigger so that you're not worried about it getting too small if the punch wears out? <laughs> so these little things definitely help. Working with your vendors on the details is very, very important. Having a good relationship with them and understanding what can happen, what to expect. 
simple things that you have to be prepared for. An example is that we've got this part. It's a fancy alloy with a special heat treating to get to the strengths that we need. That's where they bend and make the part, and then they add heat to it to make the material stronger in that form. We were working with a vendor, uh, I think they were in North Carolina. All of a sudden, we started getting parts that broke. And very fortunately, there's two lessons learned here. One is that we didn't make any design change, but the vendor got a new oven. They put pallets and pallets of this product into a huge oven. They shut the doors and they heat it up and hold it at temperature and cool it off in a certain manner to give you the properties of material that you need. And we didn't make a change. We didn't change the specifications on what we had. We were getting what we wanted at the time, but then they got a new oven and all of a sudden the parts didn't work anymore. Having to analyze that literally work hand in hand with our QC manager and figure out the root cause was so important and we solved it. In the meantime, we were having to test the hardness of every one of them that came in, a huge, huge expense and time consuming and just frustrating. But to figure out the root cause and how to make sure it never happens again, we actually had to change our specification because they weren't really making what we were calling it. Right. So when their oven changed, it was now making what we had actually specified, specifying what had worked. <laughs> <laughs> and that's thanks because that's like out of your hands because you wouldn't even known right when you're yeah. figuring this out and what really stinks too is if you have a consumer product let's just say half of them you send out end up breaking and you had no control over it you didn't know they switched to ovens and then now that's kind of tarnished your reputation right it takes a tremendous amount of money to build a reputation it takes even more to repair one and you may never repair it it was important for us to not only fix these and make it right, but to make the customers realize that we had taken care of them or even better, not know we ever had to do it. There was a lot of stuff that was in route that we turned around. You can call it Federal Express and reroute your packages back to you. Better to arrive late than broken. Well, that's good that you're able to figure out. I didn't even know you could do that. Seems so we're learning a ton about making products here. You had found that out right away. It must have just broke on one person, and then you kind of figured it out with all these other ones that you're shipping out? Yeah, just one breaks, huge alarms go off. If one's going to break, they're not doing something so different than anybody else. You always got to be on your toes to be able to react. And for that very reason, especially with consumer products, is that you have to keep very good records of what you're shipping out to each customer. You ultimately got to be able to know what vendor product they got, what shipment they got. So we keep very good records. And so doing, you don't recall stuff that didn't need fixing. You just pull back what you need to. Certainly when you're on a budget or any time, I mean, the bigger you get, the worse a problem would be. That's manufacturing. If one's bad, hundreds are bad. Yeah. And you said reputation. I've heard, yeah, it can take years to build a reputation, but it takes one instant for you to lose it all after all those years. And you're just saying, I don't even know if you necessarily can get it back. Let's just say they started breaking on the dogs or hurt the dogs or something. Then you're screwed. Yeah. Okay. So we figured that out about the product. So you're saying if we want to get the pricing down, we need to just keep coming back to the manufacturer or just ask them what are things that we can do to bring it down to a certain price point? Is that the best way to get our product cost down if we're trying to make one? Yeah. You've got to work with each individual part that you're putting into it and see how you can make that part do more. If you can combine functionality of two parts into one part, eliminate ways to put it together wrong. We've got a stamp part. Ultimately, it's supposed to be bent with the holes and stuff oriented one direction. But if they bend it in the wrong direction, now the part's no good. If you can make a part to where they can't make it wrong, they punch the holes and they bend it, it's right either way, then that reduced cost because you can't screw it up and you don't have to take the time manually loading it into a hopper that sends it through a bending machine. If one gets oriented wrong, then it's no big deal. It's still a usable part. So if you can make things interchangeable where you can't do it wrong, that's better. It's called design for assembly is the term. The fewer ways something can be screwed up, the better. <laughs> It makes sense. I mean, I'm just even picturing or thinking like, okay, if you have a PVC pipe and I have a drill and I just want to put a hole in it, it's circular. So no matter what you're saying, there's less ways of them screwing up versus if it was like an elbow bent PVC pipe and I put a hole in it. If I had to assemble it with something, it can only really go one way. There's more chances of screwing it up versus what you're saying is just making it simple. If you're using a pipe, for instance, as, as an example, if you're already in the machine that can punch a hole and you have to pay for the tooling to punch the hole, maybe it's cheaper to punch a hole at each end. But when you bend it, it's right every time. Okay. Yeah, no, th these are little things. Like, So how many parts do you have with your bike tow leash? And maybe you can walk us through or tell us kind of how many you had in the beginning and how you simplified it so we can think of ideas of how we could do that. Yeah, there's about 12 parts in it now. And how about in the beginning? 
in the beginning, uh, it was more like 20. Yeah. Okay. 20 or 25, somewhere in that range. There were springs. And if you count every fastener, there was probably 30. Yeah. You're an engineer. So you wanted to do that show yeah. off, right? Oh yeah. It was very <laughs> intricate. It was very neat. It was like a Swiss army knife and you don't need all those. All I wanted to do was cut something. I didn't need a saw and scissors to do it. Just a plain knife is all I needed. We had all the extra pieces. We had the secondary leash that would deploy and all that stuff. And it just wasn't necessary from my experiences with product development. And certainly with the forensics that I did made me very paranoid about different failure modes in forensics. You wouldn't get called in if somebody just cut themselves on a piece of paper. You get called in because somebody got cut on a, I did everything from food processors to cranes. Food processor came apart, cut this lady in the hand, for instance, made her hand not as usable as before. It's a permanent injury. And the simple cause was that they could have just changed the rotation direction of the threads that held it together or the rotation of the cutter because the rotation would loosen the fastening mechanism to where the thing went flying up in the air, let's say. You look to reduce different ways things can fail. The fewer parts you have, the fewer failure modes there are. You're bringing that story up just because that's what you're doing on the side. So you saw all these consumer products where they've done something silly, or at least yours is more simplified than like maybe a food processor. Thank goodness that could come off and slice somebody, right? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, our premise is there's not going to be any injuries caused by the bike tow leash to the dog or the rider. So much so this paranoia, that period from 2002 through 2003, when we started the company through 2009, we were testing prototypes all over the place with lots of dogs, bikes, and riders, and without a scratch before we went out with there was plenty of scratches on prior prototypes certainly ready to get your business idea online well that's where our sponsor hostgator can help so how much does it cost well you can launch your brand new website on hostgator for as little as two dollars and 64 cents a month that's a 62.01 percent discount they're providing our listeners with and it's the best deal on hosting anywhere if you don't believe me then do some of your own googling if you find a better deal out there, then feel free to email me because I haven't been able to find one. As an entrepreneur, I'm always looking for the best value. That's why I've used HostGator to run my personal websites since 2013. Do you need another reason to choose HostGator? Well, here's two more for you. They have a 99% uptime guarantee and they also have world-class customer support available 24-7, 365. Again, I can vouch for this as I've called them at 3 a.m. for help with my website and I had a customer support rep on the phone within minutes. So if you're looking to get the best deal on the best hosting provider in the world, then visit our link, hostgator.com forward slash YOLO. That's Y-O-L-O. Again, to receive that 62.01% discount on your new website, go to hostgator.com forward slash YOLO or visit the link in your episode description below. So I'm looking at, and you said your website kind of looks like 2009-ish, but I did like bring up Amazon while we we're at it because it seems like all these of you doing this, at least you kept thinking about how to improve and stuff before you try to, maybe you try to make it one year and you just send it out the next year without testing it enough. But it seems like you can tell that you took this much time and it's because you got a lot of great reviews on Amazon with it too. I could see like how that would, people can tell that you took the time to kind of figure this out. Tell us about selling on Amazon and versus like selling on your website. And if you want to just walk us through that, because I imagine that's where your sales have to come from now, right? Yeah, Amazon is a huge marketplace for our bike tow leases. We have over a dozen resellers that sell our product on Amazon currently. It started with just one lady, Brenda. I better not say her last name. Yeah, we'll discover Brenda. Brenda, she had, I think, three boxers, which is one of the highest energy breeds. You don't really think of them that way, but they're very high energy dogs. And she got the bike toe leash and was so enamored with it, she decided she wanted to put it on Amazon. She was the first. And she was putting it on Amazon and all of a sudden, other people are asking to put it on Amazon. And that's a good and a bad thing. Right. Yeah. Tell us about that because I've heard both. It was a bad thing for Brenda for me to add more resellers. She had gone through the work and got the posting up there and all that. And then adding more and more and more becomes parasitic. They're not adding more content to make it more sellable. They're not doing all those things. And there's things called map pricing where you have a minimum advertised price policy to preserve your intellectual property value. It's so much more important for brick and mortar stores competing with online where the overhead is much less. You don't want that price erosion to occur because then 
They can't afford to put it in a brick and mortar store, which is where I want it the most because we're at the price point where people would like to have their hands on it. You know, great reviews are one thing, having your hands on it and experiencing it are another. The combination of the two are wonderful and we're fortunate to have that. But for a lot of people, they really want to have their hands on it before they buy it. Yeah. You gave us a little bit of detail on there, but I mean, what's going on, on Amazon, was that beneficial for you revenue-wise? Oh, yes. I can't say enough about the reviews being a big help. And there's also a Wikilinks video that's out there that's been for at least since 2015. I don't remember if it was before that, but we've been ranked the number one dog liking attachment. They list the top five or the top seven, depending on what year we're looking at. And then there's a couple other video reviews like that that other companies have done. But we've been listed as number one for those years, which is very handy because one of the very important things about trying to maintain your marketing budget, which will rival your product cost budgets if you're not careful, is finding out where your marketing dollars are best spent. And I try to ask any customer that I end up talking to, which is about maybe 1% or less, how did you first hear about us? The vast majority will say, I typed in best dog bike attachment or best bike leash, ultimately find us that way. Or it was word of mouth or they were searching on Amazon and saw us. Yeah. And I think that's important because I do the exact same thing for the podcast. If you're out there and you have your own product or company, that's really important because then you don't know. And it's definitely less than 1%. Even the people I talk to who listen to the podcast, it's like, okay, maybe it's one a month or maybe a, a few more. But I'll always ask that because you want to know how they found you. And if they found you a certain way, you want to put the money towards there and not use it somewhere else where you don't need it. Yeah. I've been very fortunate. I think the best advertising is the stuff that I haven't spent any money on. Mm -hmm. And the Wikilinks is an offshoot of being on Amazon. Amazon, I think, is paying for that. They pay people to product review and send people because when you look at their video, it sends people to the Amazon listing, not to our website, of course. But the other fortunate things is like <laughs> the lease was actually bought on Amazon by Brandon McMillan with the CBS Lucky Dog the popular dog training show where he rescues dogs that are about ready to be euthanized and he trains them to help families and stuff like that. I met him. I'd actually seen an article about him in one of the, our pet trade show magazines and like a centerfold and I opened it up and I remember reading it and I said, I need to meet this guy. Like the planets aligned when I said that. Our next global pet expo, Betsy and I kind of stumbled into his press conference we try to go into the after show meet and greet kind of thing where they have hors d'oeuvres out and it's all elbow to elbow. Well, Betsy's in a wheelchair and we've got Ray, her service dog, attached with the bike tow leash. And it's just very cumbersome. And everybody's taller than her and she's getting elbowed in the face. She's like, just get out of there. Down a hallway trying to get back to the parking lot, get to our car and go home and eat. Saw some people, just a few people wandering around and kind of followed to see what was going on in the area. And there was a couple of girls at the door kind of controlling the door. And they said, well, what is this? And they said, oh, it's Brandon McMillan. He's got a press conference here and all this. And there was hardly anybody in there. There was like three people waiting on people for everyone in there. And they said, well, why don't you come on in? I said, oh, I'd love to meet him. And he said, well, come on in. And we're being treated like royalty instead of like cattle <laughs> up in the lobby. Then Brandon McMillan walks up and he sees the bike tow leash attached to the chair with Betsy and the dog there. And he says, I've used that on my show, which this is CBS television. This is something that I couldn't afford to buy. Yeah, it's every Saturday morning because I'm looking at the picture now because I've seen it on what I've had on TV. Yeah, he's on there on Saturday mornings around 10 or 11 or something like that. And he says, oh, I've used that on my show. And, and so I immediately went home and set my DVR to find it. <laughs> it hadn't played yet. It was yeah. for the episode Sawyer, which is a yellow lab that he rescued that the family was a big biking family. And they wanted to bike with the dog. So he went on Amazon and got our leash. And since then, he's used it on wheelchairs and for dogs that are overweight as well. Again, this comes back to the importance of the quality that you put into the product. And then my next thing is everything you said, I've been Googling and it's true. If you're the top websites about biking with a dog, how to do it, whatever. So again, even though your sales might not show it on your like home website, all these other avenues that you're selling on Amazon or through these other ones, I imagine that's where the majority of the revenues come in. But my next question is like where I heard this, I don't know if the patent helps you. I'm surprised I still have not seen anything super similar to yours, your product, just while I've been Googling what you've been talking. It's always been your product, but I haven't seen any knockoffs. Like sometimes I would see if I'm Googling about like, I don't know, some type of charger for my phone or some way to hold it. There's always different knockoffs, but I don't see that with yours. So have you had an issue with that? We're patented in several countries and stuff. We've not had an issue. There's additional ways we protect ourselves in marking our individual parts. Each leash has a serial number on it and code that 
track it back to all the contents again, but also there's there's other things built into that to we know if it came from us or not. Okay, so you haven't seen any of that because that's one issue that I could see you maybe eventually run into because it's not, again, super complicated, but I mean, I know you put a lot of time into it, but it seems like someone from, you know, maybe China or something could easily knock it off and try to make one that looked like it that maybe didn't work as well as yours. Nothing like that has happened yet? No, not at this point. Okay. Thank goodness. If we run across something that looks kind of funny, we go ahead and purchase it and see. And especially if we enforce our map policy and stuff, if somebody's breaking the map, we'll purchase it to verify where it's coming from if we can't do it by whatever name it's being sold under. Okay. So what's map policy? That's the manufacturer's price policy, M-A-P-P. It's a minimum advertised price is what it is. And Google and all these tools are very powerful. If I don't happen to run across it, one of our resellers will because they all are held to that. And I certainly thank them for finding it if they've got it. Okay. So the key is to purchase anything like that. Again, I'm just thinking about risk mitigation for anybody who's going to run into these type of things. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. If you're seeing it for less than all the other ones, then it's an anomaly and it may not be an authorized seller. All right. From that, I'm just trying to think. So after you got on the, was it just 2009, 2010? Ever since then, it's just steadily increased or has there been anything else that we can learn from your story? Well, in 2009, there was really only, I think, three other items on the market at all. And the patents have run out on those to where there's now a whole bunch of other people selling those as well. There's more players in the market, which dilutes the share and stuff. So it's been pretty steady. For whatever reason, 2014 was a little bit better year than we've had since then, but it's been pretty steady. It hasn't taken off astronomically, but I more feel that that's from the way I'm marketing. I'm not marketing my physical presence out west, for instance, where there's more early adoption. I'm looking for more distribution in those areas, that sort of thing, if anybody's listening. Oh, no, that's, that's important. That's part of the reason I have the guest on here. Because again, now all of us have specialties and hopefully anyone who's listening, if they can help a certain guest who's on here, you don't have every specialty. So if anyone has anything what you're saying with dealing with the marketing and is what you need more help with. And what else? I mean, because we keep jumping back to 2009, 2010. So you've been working from home ever since. And is there anything else about running a company that we could learn from you before we get off the call? That's very interesting. Again, keep your overhead low so that you have flexibility. If Certainly, if you're ever thinking about starting a business, you don't want to be overextended in any way. You need to be able to have credit if you need it. Hopefully, you have the funds to move forward. We're still assembling and shipping from our home for the reason I need to be here. And the other reason is I don't want to increase that overhead. It allows me to work with young students and stuff, which is lower overhead. We work it as an internship. They're learning a lot. Some of them actually get to participate in some forensics, that sort of thing. Hire people that are interested in areas that you have weakness. Don't hire people that are just like you because then you're just going to have the same weaknesses. I think that's important because when we talked on the pre-interview, I thought your story is kind of interesting. You're not maybe one of the guys that we've had on that's generating millions of dollars of revenue a year, but maybe more of a lifestyle where you have the ability to work from home and take care of your wife and keeping your overhead low and being able to, you said, I guess you work with students as well to try to help you assemble everything together at your house before you send them off. But these little things that give you the freedom, I think that's important more than just how much money you make every year, right? Yeah, no, it's not at all about the money at this point. It's about being able to do what I want to do, go biking a day a week, be here six days a week, taking care of my wife and getting better part of a day off with my friends to go bike, get my physical exercise, be able to take Betsy to her doctors and stuff earlier in the day. And then from two o'clock to six o'clock, we work and then back to the home life. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit more about having to deal with that with your wife? I imagine that had to be kind of devastating. I don't know if we jumped in or dived in a little bit to that. I mean, when you're making your own company and having to deal with this with a life partner. It's part of life. We're all going to lose abilities at some point. And unfortunately, it's sooner with my wife. She's in a wheelchair. But again, try to make the best of what we have. We have a wheelchair-capable leash because she's here to test it. I actually had a customer in the UK that got the first wheelchair-length leash. We sent him one, and it was too long. You're on both sides of the hallway. You've got issues with how far the dog can get away and stuff. And you don't need it as long because the wheelbase and you're not going as fast. So you don't need that shock absorption. Working hand in hand with people with special needs is kind of how this all started to begin with. Raising the service dogs, we raised 10 with this leash as a tool. And so as Betsy's abilities have declined, 
we've come up with more and more ways to help her, in particular with the bike toe leash and her being in the chair, traveling and visiting different restrooms and restaurants and flying on airplanes, all these things that we do, learning about how to make it work in all these environments is taking the frustrations that we have turn into a positive for other people, I guess is the best way of putting it. So what do you see for the future of your company? This is a case where we say you want to make your product as great as possible. It seems like you've got that down, but maybe you would mention it's something to do with marketing because you also have to do that. I think that too many people get stuck on one thing or the other versus case in point, like maybe I'll work on my product first and then I'll work on marketing or vice versa. But you have to eventually do both of them in order to grow your business. You can't be successful without a successful marketing plan. You've got to continually figure out where you're spending the money wisely and where you aren't. It's You get inundated by people that want to sell you an ad in a magazine or try to sell you a TV commercial. I really got suckered on that if you want to hear about a bad experience. I oh, know, definitely. That's what we're here to hear. So yeah, tell us about that. Yeah. I get approached by somebody almost monthly or less. We want to put you on a TV show. We want to do all this. And then they want $17,000 to do it. And there's a lot better ways to spend your money, believe me. In our case, I certainly learned a couple of things. One, if somebody's filming your product in use, you better be hands-on. Don't be absent because they're going to film it in ways that you don't want it to be shown. And once that happens, it's absolutely useless to you. That drug out the process. And another was that they were going to take some product and you know do this thing where they take care of the phones and all this stuff and sell them that way. They never sold all the product. The problem is that we have a very active lifestyle type product. It's not for people that spend their time in front of the television looking at commercials. Few people take the time to watch commercials anyway. Right. And you pay for that airtime whether people are looking at it or not. It also has to do with time of year, time of the day, day of the week, what channel it's on. There's so many variables that can lead you away from that media. It's too expensive for any startup company. If you got on QVC channel or something like that where it wasn't costing you up front, Maybe, depending on the product, but not for a product where you're expecting where people are going outside. If it's for use outside, people are inside watching the television. That's not where they're going to be. It's people that are more active than that and certainly active enough to push the fast forward button. That's smart. Now, maybe you weren't thinking about that at the time when you bought these commercial or this commercial. They're very good at selling commercials. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense since yours is for an active lifestyle type of person demographic. If you were like in a store and you had a poster there showing that or the actual product there, then it makes more sense because they're looking for those things versus someone who's just watching late night TV and they see it on there. Yeah. Exactly. So you'd say stay weary of those commercials? Commercials, magazines are getting read less and less. A lot of ads can be very, very expensive. If you're going to buy an ad, it better be affordable. Sometimes it's better to get a magazine that's just starting up. You can have an ad all year in it for less than for one issue of some other magazine. It may never open to that page. But a brand new magazine, maybe people are going to peruse a little bit more. And maybe if you're in more pages of it more times, you're more likely to be seen. Yeah, that makes more sense than, like you were saying, when you get learned about the TV commercials. If you can ever give away your product to somebody that's going to use it and talk about it in any kind of media, that's where to spend your time. If you can give it to an organization that's going to value and cherish it, they're going to market you. Adoption agencies, dog trainers, people that do video blogs. I've got people that post on Facebook. They'll talk about us and pipe in if there's an Instagram post or something like that. So did you end up doing that, Mike? Yes. I've sold and given away to different adoption agencies and they've put us on their Facebook page, on Instagram. People that have reviewed us for the privilege of getting a leash as far away as in France. Somebody that's a very good photographer. We're using a lot of those pictures in different parts of our marketing. That's smart. Instead of doing a TV commercial, like you said, to any generic person, if you're getting it to a dog shelter, I mean, how many people are looking for dogs and see that and maybe want to use that? Is that something that you learned over time? Oh yeah. There's uh, dog adoption agencies that I've actually given a bike tow leash with a bike. People throw out bikes just because it's easier than taking it to Salvation Army or something like that. No pump up the tires, put a bike leash on it and give it to an adoption agency or something like that. Now they're exercising their dogs and they're grateful for it. I'll give them a stack of brochures and they'll put one of our brochures in every one of the bags that they get when an adoption goes through. There's all sorts of paperwork and treats and stuff that get donated for those adoption agencies. And we're just part of that. But I think about that $17,000, it makes me ill to think about how many leashes I could have given away with that money. <laughs> right. Because it's a win-win what you're saying now too, versus if you give it to shelter, you just got to think that way. Where are your ultimate 
consumer is going to be like you're helping the dog shelter out but also those people are going to be there and those are the exact same customers it sucks because we've all been suckered in about some things but you're saying even that seventeen thousand dollar commercial like where you could have sent that to how many different dog shelters instead and then probably gotten a way obviously way better return than you could send that to 115 dog shelters is basically what i'm looking at and yeah right just did the math on that and it's just like so we'd be weary of commercials it sounds like at least yeah. No, if, if you can do some good, especially stuff that makes you feel good about it, people are going to feel good about you. Yeah. Cause you don't feel good about that TV commercial, obviously. No, no, I, <laughs> I, I would I never, feel good. I'm not going to recommend them ever. And if you can find a way to do good with your product, people will do good for you. I appreciate you doing the interview, especially anyone who's interested in a product making one here. And I think we've learned a lot, a little steps along the way. I think that was a pretty good way you left it off there. But is there anything else that you want to leave with anyone who's listening here on what they could learn from your story? Just go in it one day at a time. I certainly many times through this process, I have wondered what my exit strategy would be if this isn't going to work out. And you've got to jump in with both feet and believe in yourself. If you don't believe in your product 100%, then step back and get some other opinions about it. And maybe there's ways to make it what you want it to be. Well, thank you, Mike, for joining us. And if anyone wanted to reach out to you to either say thank you for the interview or if they wanted to reach out and have some ideas on how you could maybe market the product a little bit better, what's the best way for them to reach you? They can reach me on my email at info at biketoleash.com or they can dial 857-BIKE-DOG. All right. Well, we appreciate you doing the interview here, Mike. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Hey there, millionaire interview listener. Thank you again for tuning in to this episode. If you enjoyed it and want to show us a little support, we would really appreciate a five-star review. It helps other listeners find the show so they can enjoy it just like you. And if you're looking for more episodes that are in the product niche, then try episode 11 with Bottle Breacher founder Eli Crane or episode 13 with Sammy of BlackSocks.com or try episode 18 with Yak Gear founder Bill Bragman. As always, thanks again for tuning in and have a great day. Bye.